He is risen. Good morning and happy Easter Sabbath. Today, our whole denomination, Adventism Worldwide, celebrates the reality that while Jesus rested in the grave, the grave couldn't keep him. And we serve a Lord who is risen. And so we join with our brethren across Christian communities in saying, the empty tomb is what gives us hope for the future. Now, we want to get into our text for today, which has to do with something really, really interesting. We're talking about Cain, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 4, so get your Bibles ready. But before we do that, and before we pray, we want to make sure that we're connecting with our viewership. Now, some of you has, have asked me, where are those books? We've ordered the books because you had such an amazing response and we want to actually, we want, we definitely want to recognize you connecting with us. We love interacting with you. And so we've ordered the books. They are coming and we're going to be mailing them. If you've sent me an email, if you've sent our church an email, if you've reached out to us via phone, I did get a wonderful phone message uh, last week from somebody living in Cincinnati, Ohio, we are definitely getting um, all of your messages, and so we're going to make sure that we connect with you. But before we do that, we recognize that this whole program happens because of you, that our conversations matter because we're able to engage with a community that lives all across the country and sometimes even across the world. And I know that after our conversation last week on the fall, we had a slew of comments and emails, and so we want to recognize that. So my friend, my brother, my colleague in arms, my conversation partner, Joey's going to read one of the comments that he found moving, and I'm going to read one of the comments from our YouTube page that I found really interesting. And so we want to start with that before before we pray. So Joey, what did what did you hear this week? Wow, we got so many diff great emails. Very, very insightful. I want to share one from Amy Johnson. Um, she wrote, I appreciate the framing of reality, in quotes. Just a couple of thoughts. One, Satan slash serpent used the same temptation on Eve to which he succumbed. So mm. he must have found that compelling. And so he used that same kind of deception on Eve. And then number two, point number two, reality restricts God's function. But Satan is free to use deceit and make claims outside of reality. He knew that nothing, no one could ever match God's power, love, intelligence, knowledge. But he wasn't constrained by reality and truth. And he knew the consequences of his temptation. She would lose heaven as he had. So she, he was well aware of what would result from um, Eve and Adam choosing uh, to, to sin. But he, in leading them to that place, he wasn't constrained by reality. Mm. He could lie. And, uh, you know, that makes perfect sense because if Satan and God were competing on equal footing, if they both had to stick to the truth, it'd be obvious who everybody would want to follow. Yeah. Yeah. So Satan does that to us. Great points, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing. Amy, that is so brilliant. So the only way that Satan has a chance is if he deceives us. Mm. Yeah. That is profound. Yes. 
Joey, I don't know about you, but we have some fantastic listeners and viewers out there who are stretching our theological muscles. Yeah. I had never thought about that, Amy. That is such a good point. Um, let's see. Well, I want to share something that we got from our YouTube page. And Ima Mudonta, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, sent a really interesting question that just got my, ju my juices flowing. So let me read the question to you. Hello, pastors. What is the significance of the placement of the cherubim in the east of the Garden of Eden in Genesis mm. chapter 3, verse 23 and 24? If the tree of life was placed in the center of the garden, what is the rationale of restricting its access from the east? Was this specification intended for the original audience? Did the imagery of the east have a specific meaning? Why not just remove the tree immediately after the fall? Imam, that's such a good question. And the answer to the question is as your initial idea and your that thing that was rumbling in your stomach saying it must have meant something to the original audience, as that suggested, you are absolutely right. So I want to answer the question by parts. First off, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a tree in the east in Eden, and there he had put the man he had formed. And so this idea of planting uh, a tree in the east is connected with that e with that notion that you have Imam, that in the that the east meant something to the original audience. It meant something to the Jews. So if you read if you read on and you read uh, the book of Leviticus, the priests in Leviticus, Joey, they had to sprinkle the remainders, the ashes of the offering to the east side of the mm. altar. The tabernacle itself, the entrance to the tabernacle, was placed on the east side. And the idea of the temple, this place from which rivers of life would be flowing, was, you guessed it, at the east. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the east represents the pathway to entrance into a relationship that is restorative with God. Mm -hmm. And so because Adam and Eve's lack of trust broke that relationship, the East was no longer open until God created a new covenantal pathway for us to enter East. And so if you're a Jew reading this, you are reading it with heartbreak, but with also joy because you realize that the East, that East that was shut by the cherubim, has now been open in the notion of the tabernacle and the temple. Thank you for the question. It really, really stretched and made me deep, dig deep in the Bible to try and find out all these references to the East in the Old Testament. That's so beautiful. And that just kind of reminds me of when we were in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, uh, we were told of the Jewish belief that actually that God would come when when the Messiah comes, he would come from the east, he would come over, uh, that's where the resurrection would start. And so um, a lot of people, a lot of um, the Jews want to be buried on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east mm -hmm. of Jerusalem, so that they get the best seats at resurrection <laughs> to the coming of Jesus. And so there is that, that connection there as well. It's a beautiful yeah. connection. It's also um, reminiscent, Joey, of this thing that happens on the very Temple Mount, right? Mm -hmm. the, the gates themselves will be open, mm -hmm. and you'll technically be able to see all the way through from the opening of the Temple to the Holy of Holies. Wow. Now, 
you were there, so you you got to tell me: is that uh, Muslim cemetery still there yes. on the east that they've closed up that door? Yes, the Golden Gate is closed. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how we're going to manage that, um, but I know that the God that we serve is a God for all faith bases, all yeah. people, all nations, all tribes, and yes. all tongues. That's beautiful. Yeah. Joey, let's pray before we get into Genesis chapter 4. And for you, my our dear friends, keep, keep those comments coming. Keep those questions coming. They really, really invigorate our conversations. But for now, let me, let me invite you to pray. God, thank you because you are the God of the East. Thank you because you are the God that deals in reality. We pray that you protect us from the deceit that the enemy has. And we pray, Lord, that you allow us to trust you enough that we may once again dwell in your presence. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, Joey, today we move on. Uh, we've left Eden behind. And now... Adam and Eve are experiencing the reality in a world full of thorns and thistles. And Genesis chapter 4 begins kind of with this idea of what life is outside of the garden. Adam lays with his wife Eve and she gives birth to a man named Cain. I want, I, I want us to linger just for a moment uh, with what Eve says when Cain was born, and it's just such a mm. heartbreaking statement, right? She said, and this is uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, With the help of the Lord, mm. I have brought forth wow. a man. And it's interesting because the language itself is very reminiscent mm. to what Adam says when he sees yeah. Eve for the first time, right? Mm. Um, you shall be called woman, for out of man you were taken. Mm. And so there's this beautiful connection with the creative act in Genesis chapter 2, except outside of the garden, yeah. even these creative acts can turn into tragedy. I know. It is, it's, it's both um, powerful and heartbreaking. You know, the, the, the imagery, the reflexive imagery that you see, the connection, the mirror imagery that you see between Genesis 3 and 2 and Genesis 4, um, it's almost like a funhouse mirror mm. you know it's like a distortion it's a reflection but it's a distorted mm -hmm. reflection of what came before mm -hmm. and yeah so she she uses this beautiful imagery to describe Cain and you know Ellen White talks about how Eve hoped mm -hmm. that Cain would be that savior that mm -hmm. promised savior that that would come and deliver them from from sin and um, well we're going to find out later in the story how terribly wrong mm. she was so that's the heartbreaking part. It's 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 heartbreaking, but I love that concept of a me a funhouse mirror because that's actually what what is happening, and Joey that that is born in the text, right? If you keep reading, you're going to see that then comes Abel, and there's this there's this description and this identity both that Abel and the Cain have based on their work, yeah. and if we've been reading carefully. We've also learned that the relationship vis-a-vis -vis us and work has shifted mm. dramatically and tragically. Yeah. So it's, it's almost this, it's foreboding in the sense because we've just heard 
thorns and thistles, mm. the sweat of your brow, and you will go back to the dust because you came to the earth from whence you came because you are dust. And here, at, here, the first thing that we know about these siblings is that Abel kept flocks mm. and Cain worked the ground, the earth, the dust. Yeah. Already we have a fulfillment of, of what um, God said would happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it probably, it probably deteriorated faster than Adam and Eve were probably expecting. Mm. You know, it, it probably, I mean, I, I can't even imagine going from perfection, going from the world as God envisioned it to be, to just seeing it fall apart in front of your eyes. Um, and to the point where just one chapter later, just in one generation, we already have murder mm -hmm. at the end of this. Not to spoil anything for anybody <laughs> who doesn't know the story. But but yeah, just just to go from absolute perfection to that. And it's just, it's so striking how destructive mm. sin is. Mm. How destructive sin is. Mm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, something that Rabbi Zacharias said, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay, right? And I find it a little bit ironic yeah. knowing now about yeah. <laughs> Zacharias and his history. I find it ironic that he said that, but it is so true. Mm -hmm. we, we think these little things that we do, these little sins that we commit are just, they're not going to really harm anything. Mm -hmm. They're not going to bother anybody not realizing what it's doing to our hearts, what it's doing to our souls, how it's distorting us, and it takes us farther than we want to mm. go and makes us cost us in the end way more than we want to pay. It's kind of like it's kind of like a credit card, you know, a credit card uh, debt, right? When you first acquire a credit card, I don't know if you got one in college, but I remember going to college and there were all these credit card companies. They were all trying to sign you up for like, you'll, they'll give you a free t-shirt, you know, whatever. If they just, you just sign up for yeah. the credit card and you do. And at first you think it's free money yeah. until you realize how quickly that debt, you know, that $10 meal that you kept on, uh, you kept acquiring debt on, it, it eventually costs you by the end thousands of dollars yeah. Because you don't realize how quickly that interest compounds. And sin is worse than a credit card. Mm. It just compounds the interest and destructiveness on our souls. Joey, that is so aptly stated. Um, I think I'm still paying for some of those college <laughs> meals, by the way. But it's so aptly stated because you're right. It starts with this simple decision. Let me eat a fruit mm. and let me let me try to be my own God. It breaks the relationship that exists between us and between the ground. And by the start of this chapter, you already see the emergence of silos and tribalism. Mm. Scholars wow. will tell you that Genesis 4 is mirrored throughout the literature of the ancient Near East, particularly Ugaritic manuscripts. So in the Rashamra tab tablets, which were, dis which were Ugaritic or Canaanite uh, stories, you have this story of Dumuzi, Enkidu, and Inanna. Mm. And Inanna is a goddess. The other two are gods, the god of uh, the agrarians or the farmers mm. and the god of the shepherds. And they are fighting each other. Wow. And the agrarian god actually murders the shepherd god. Right. And so a lot of scholars see some parallels between that story in the ancient Near East and this story. Mm. And I think 
the fact is that you do see kind of this emergence of tribalism and clanism. I am different from you because of what I do. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's so true because there is some kind of jealousy that's happening mm -hmm. here, right? Um, there, there's, and we don't, the, the passage isn't so explicit as why Cain is so mm -hmm. jealous of Abel. I mean, if we keep on reading, it says, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And so you're talking about that tribalism, that division that's already happening, that difference. And the difference doesn't have to lead to division. Right. You know, you can have differences and still be united. But in, in this instance, it seems like it leads to, they allow those differences to become division. It says, verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought forth some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So what's going on here? I mean, why, why is it that God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's offering? Is God like contributing to that division and differences? Wow. And what's, what's yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because we know that grain offerings were okay. Yeah. Grain offering sacrifices were, at, were actually expected. And so there's nothing wrong, objectively, with Cain bringing the first fruits of his labor. Uh, just like there's nothing wrong with Abel bringing the first fruit of his labors. Now, later on in the New Testament, we're going to have some exegesis and hermeneutics of this passage where it says that maybe Cain's interior uh, heart and his interior uh, well uh, being with God wasn't probably in the space that it needed to be, but that's assuming. Mm -hmm. um, so if we just have this text, up to that point, there's been nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, and God then looks with favor on one offering. Because, let's face it, it's God's right. Mm -hmm. If we believe in providence, it's God's right to look with favor on whatever God wants to. And so, I think at this moment, Cain has an option. I don't think Cain has done anything wrong to this point, mm. but the option and the maybe opportunity to use disappointment as a tool for growth is here. And perhaps that is more useful than being than his all having his offering being accepted by God. Wow. Look at what God says in verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not will it not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. Mm. It desires you, but you must master it. And so it's mm. not that God is playing favorites, perhaps it's that God knows the temperament of both brothers and he's trying to provide and create a safe space for Cain to grow. Mm. So up until verse 7, it seems like God has, at least if you're reading the text carefully, presented Cain with an opportunity to utilize and leverage disappointment in order to grow. Wow. So there was, God had, you're saying that God had already recognized that there is some brokenness in Cain that needs to be healed. And that healing can only happen through providing opportunities for him to admit his wrong, to um, ask for help, to reach out 
um, and not repeat maybe the same steps that Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. his parents did, of trusting in himself mm-hmm. instead of trusting in God. So he's trying to, he's trying whatever he can do to create a space where Cain will step into trusting God more than trusting himself, and yet Cain doesn't. He yeah. just turns his back on God and, and does something mm. terrible instead. Yeah. Wow. And, and look at the language here at the end of verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. In the original, mm. it's almost this predatory um, stalking. Uh, picture one of these great cats in in Africa or the cat that lives next door to me when they see a mouse and they're just, you yeah. see kind of these this predatory mm. look and glean in their eye. It's getting ready to, to must to have you but you must muster it. And it seems sometimes like our internal brokenness, like you're talking about, is almost always ready to just take over us to the point where sometimes maybe we have temper issues and we say, I don't don't know where that came from. And immediately when the words fly out of our mouth, you're trying to, you're trying with all your might to bring them back because that wasn't your intention. Uh, And so here you have this opportunity for mastery, for working on what Christians have called for 2,000 years, the inner life. Mm. Um, Asceticism wasn't always about denial. Denial was kind of a tool that the ascetic uses Mm -hmm. in order to muster something. Mm. And so uh, asceticism is kind of built on the premise that you utilize hardship and disappointment and you view them not as a curse, mm. not as punishment from God, but as an opportunity for deeper, deeper spiritual growth. Wow. And we all need that, don't we? I mean, we all have different brokenness, mm-hmm. but we all have brokenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like God is well aware of the shape of each of our brokenness. And he tries to provide those opportunities like he does for Cain then he must provide those opportunities for us as well. Mm-hmm. Opportunities that sometimes challenge us and maybe even prick those those things that actually aggravate us and kind of set us off as opportunities for us to master what's inside of us. Yeah. 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 As you mentioned, though, Joey, he doesn't master it, does he? Mm. And so tragedy follows. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go down to the field. Mm. And while they, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Mm. Kind of matter-of-factly, isn't it? There's no emotionality. There's premeditation, though. Yeah. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why later uh, Jewish and Hebrew jurisprudence makes a very clear difference between murder that is premeditated. Before we had our legal system, murder that was premeditated versus murder that was a fit of rage. Mm. And here, the problem is, this is why the text is very clear. It's not that Cain's anger and disappoint him lead him immediately, immediately to lash out. God has given him this opportunity. He's reflected upon the opportunity. And now he has made a plan and followed through with the plan to murder his brother. So this is not the heat of the moment. This it doesn't is, seem like it is, does it? Yeah, it, it, it really doesn't. That He actually made a plan, chose to take him out there. And I, I'm just, again, I'm just so shocked at him killing his brother because this has never happened. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine a world where murder doesn't happen, where 
where people don't kill people. Mm. But that has never happened up to this point. And yet Cain thinks about doing this and chooses to murder. And I wonder if he fully grasped what this would mean, him killing his brother. Did he fully realize that once he killed his brother, his brother would no longer Mm. be there? Mm. That he would... Because this, again, has never happened. Of course, they have killed animals, animals, right? Um, So they have seen that uh, what death does to animals. So maybe there was some awareness, but it just... It just shocks me how quickly he jumps Hmm. to murder. And the story from the very beginning is pushing us to this recognition of it ending in tragedy. Hmm. It's kind of like these Greek tragedies where where you know, if you knew Hebrew, you know that Abel's, it's not going to end well. The name itself, right, (laughs) means a breath, something that's here and and then is not here anymore. And so... Um, it, you know that Abel, so that Abel's not going to be around. You know that this is going to be tragic. And yet, as you said, even with all this preparation, and by the way, even with reading the story time and time again, mm. it's still shocking when you get when you get to verse eight, mm. when you hear Cain in the shadows of the Garden of Eden pouncing upon Abel Mm. and disposing of him. And by the way, the language also is not only pointing us to this ending in a tragedy with the name that Abel has, but it's also closely connected to this idea of sacrifice. Mm. Uh, What happens to Abel uh, being very closely connected, at least linguistically, to what happens to a burnt offering and sacrifice. This is almost like Abel was a precursor of an offering, Mm -hmm. but this time it's an unwilling offering. It's an unwilling offering. Wow. You know, it's so interesting, going back to what you said about Abel's name being Vapor. I mean, just the irony between how much hope Eve seems to pin on his her firstborn mm-hmm. son Cain, and you know how much of the verse is emphasized on Cain. It's it's brief. It's just one one verse, but it's so much more than what mm-hmm. she says about Abel. Right? It says, verse in verse one, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. You can see, almost sense the excitement there. Mm-hmm. Like yes, this is like an achievement, and then. Verse two, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she names him Vapor. And it's just it's just so ironic that that the person that she pins all of her hopes on ends up being the murderer. Uh-huh. And the person that she almost discounts is the one that actually follows God. Yeah. And it, it's 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 really ironic but I was I, as I was reading it this mo- this morning and as I was thinking about the the Hebrew and Habel which as you said means breath or, or vapor or air um I'm wondering how how a lot of things change between us and scripture contextually historically culturally but some things stay the same do you remember when you had when you had Becca, I remember when I had Micah, and it was like we planned, and we baby-proofed the house, and we were in the hospital way before time, way before it was time, yeah. and we were excited. And then thirty-six year, hours later, here comes this this beautiful baby. 
when we had Kai, it was complete. It was like, oh, we've got this. We know how to do. We know how to be parents. And so it was it was a completely different experience. Yeah. So, yes, there are some things within the human experience that change. And I think at a deep level, what you're saying is really important. The language pushes us back to the beginning. And it's mm. almost as there's this hope of recreation. Mm. Uh, that is birthed with Cain mm -hmm. and Abel seems to be a second hope. So there is that deep theological point. But I love how the author also says, hey, human beings have changed a lot and the ways in which we give birth and we plan families have changed a lot. But shockingly, some things stay the same. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I remember... Um, and you think I would know better as a second-born child, right? <laughs> like as a second-born child, you, you know that sometimes you get the short end of the stick. You also get away with more you as do. a second-born child. Absolutely, you, you do. do as a first-born. Let's put that out there. But yeah, just just the level of effort that you put into the first versus the second. And I don't know. I've never had a third or fourth, but I'm sure it's it's diminishing returns from that <laughs> point on. I mean, by fourth, you're probably like, all right, do we even need to have a celebration? You know. <laughs> but um, yeah, there there is that that sense that that even from the beginning, that was part of human nature. That yeah. discounting of of what is to come oh. second, and yet. So much in scripture revolves mm. around this message that what is discounted by humans is used so powerfully by God. Yeah, right? thank you for bringing that up because that's, the, again, even in this kind of jovial and we're joking about it sense that, yeah, things change, but some stay the same. The one thing that remains constant in scripture is that whatever we discard, mm. whether it's people, whether it's resources, whether it's ideas, whether it's hopes or expectations, mm -hmm. God takes and does something wonderful with them. Yeah. And yet that same God always presents a way back, a path to restoration and to mm -hmm. forgiveness. Again, you hear echoes mm -hmm. of Genesis 3. Yeah. Then the Lord, verse 9, said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? That sounds really similar to the question he asked Adam, yes. right? Where are you? Yeah. And some lessons okay. ought to be learned. You know that the response that he's expecting from Adam and Eve are, Hey God, I sinned mm -hmm. and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But instead of that, it seems like the one thing that is passed down through this inherited brokenness that is sin is our capacity and our desire to justify mm. and hide wow because kate because cain says i don't know am i my brother's keeper and god's probably thinking yes yes you are mm -hmm. wow you know that reminds me of this concept of generational sin there mm -hmm. seems to be a concept of generational sin that is woven throughout scripture this idea that our sinful habits our sinful tendencies our sinful brokenness seems to get passed down if not genetically there there is some case to be made that it happens genetically yeah. as well but if not genetically at least by the habits and the the ways that we interact with the world we learn those from our parents and then we pass them down to our children and so we have these broken patterns that happen over and over again until they are somehow fixed mm. but what's what's even worse about this situation is that Cain's response 
So it's almost like God throws a, a pop quiz, but he gives the same questions to two different generations. And you hope that by the second generation, they have learned the answers to the pop quiz, mm-hmm. but they don't. In fact, Cain seems to do worse mm-hmm. at the quiz than even Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. You know, Adam and Eve, eventually, at least they get to the sense of, you know, I feel bad about what I did, right? right? There is There is some sense of guilt, some sense of, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have done this. Cain is almost flippant in his response to God, right? Um, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's mm. keeper? I mean, that's just, wow. Mm. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's just, again, shocking how, how quickly things seem to deteriorate over and over again. Yeah, and, and we might look at this and say shocking, but I think, as you mentioned, it's this idea that now we call, epi- we call epigenetics, right? Mm, this idea yeah. of generational trauma and generational sin going from family down onto family and family and family and family until someone decides to make a change, until someone decides to say, I am no longer going to be prisoner to those circumstances. And that's what what I found in in the midst of this story and this lesson that is one full of tragedy, I found a bit of of hope. Mm -hmm. Because that question Mm -hmm. that is being asked, that pop quiz that is being asked of our ancestors is still being asked of us now. Mm -hmm. And we still have the opportunity of being the generation that is going to say, the trauma, the brokenness, it ends with me. Mm. I am actually going to answer the this pop quiz with honesty, mm. with openness, with acceptance, and with repentance. That's beautiful. Wow. So the Lord said, verse 10, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Mm. Two things that, that I noticed, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. The first one, Again, this language of sacrifice, right? The blood seeping into the earth. And now um, it actually crying out, it testifying uh, for Cain's, and it testifying to Cain's cruelty and this flippant decision to commit violence. So that's one of them. Mm. The second is just like uh, those people who would pursue violence and brokenness and sin and to lie it seems like in god every it seems like in god everything becomes better so the the blood of abel is going to cry out vengeance the blood of jesus is going to cry out mercy Hmm. but it's that same soaked earth that we that we live in and the second one is often when we suffer we think that it matters not to God. We wonder and we ask this question as we see, for example, the horrifying pictures of the brutality of war in Ukraine, and we're wondering, where is God in all of this? Mm. Genesis 4 seems to be really clear. God is keenly aware of the brutality and the violence that we commit against each other, and he does not forget. He is the voice for the voiceless. Mm. He is the one who advocates for those who can't advocate for themselves. That's so beautiful, you know, that God is the one that speaks up for those that cannot speak up for themselves, that he hears those voiceless cries from the ground when when the powerful take over and, and abuse the, the mm. weak right as as has happened in this this pa- cha- chapter and 
he not only hears those cries, he works actively to redeem mm -hmm. those cries and take those that distorted funhouse mirror that we talked mm -hmm. about and and to bring it back into focus. Like you said with Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus does is like a mirror image of this, except he goes willingly mm -hmm. to death and by his blood, that that mirror can be fixed, mm -hmm. reality can be undistorted, and we can be led back into a, a healing relationship mm -hmm. with God again. And that's the that's I think the joy of the gospel. The joy mm -hmm. of the gospel is when we read this story, we say that is brutality at its worst. Mm -hmm. And then we see Jesus, as you said, willfully, lovingly, patiently climbing upon a cross and say, I cannot wait for my blood to seep the ground because that is what redeems you. Now, our chapter started with this description of what each of them do. Mm. So this close connection between Cain and the ground. And it is that same ground that served as Cain's place of work, this place of business that gave him so much sense of identity the relationship with that is going to change. And again, you hear echoes, right, from Genesis chapter 3, when uh, you hear uh, now, verse 11, you are under a curse and driven from the ground. Mm. And by the way, the, the original word is the same in, in all uh, verse 4, this idea of this linkage to the ground and the earth. You are now driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, this tiller of the ground now is going to hear this curse. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless and a wanderer, wanderer on the earth. Mm, yeah. So this, this, even this thing that he had taken so much pride in becomes a source of like destruction and hurt mm -hmm. for him. And just reminds me of the same thing with Adam and Eve. Um, we we received emails about this as well. The idea that Adam. You know, it seemed a very loving thing for Adam to sacrifice his eternity, his eternal life, his, his relationship with God for the sake of being with Eve. It sounds all romantic until you discover that a few verses later, he, he's, he's just throwing, Eve. yeah, he's going to blame Eve. It destroys his relationship with Eve. And in the same way, um, this thing that he's he's so prideful about and the fact that he's so angry that God doesn't receive the the gift of the ground that he, he now now it becomes because he's fallen into sin he's it becomes a source of destruction it even destroys that thing that he loves yeah. and it just um, reminds me CS Lewis talks about how um, that that when if I want to love my earthly dearest best I must love God first. Mm. When God, when first things are placed first, then the second things we will love best. And um, I, I brutal, brutally destroyed <laughs> that quote, but that's my paraphrase of what C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter. Um, but there, there is that concept that that God, that when we put first, when we put God first, it doesn't diminish everything else. It actually makes everything else better. Right. Yeah. And when we try to put other things above God, even things that are good to love, if we place it above God, it actually diminishes mm -hmm. the thing that we place above God. Oh, that's so beautifully stated. And so it's this it's this idea that these things that we value um, will be of no value mm. if we don't take care in our in manicuring and, and caring for a relationship with God and with each other. Mm. 
So, what do we make of how Cain responds to this, Joey? My punishment is more than I can bear. Why? Because, hey, I don't have my brother anymore. I'm really heartbroken. No! <laughs> he says, today you are driving me from the, you are driving me from the land and I, be hit, I will be hidden from your presence. I will be restless and a wanderer and whoever finds me kills me, will kill me. At no point, by <laughs> yeah. the way, if we're going to spoil this for you. At no point in chapter four are you going to get even a hint of remorse mm. out of Cain. Mm. And yet Cain is extended grace mm. upon grace upon grace. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. He's, he's only worried about himself mm -hmm. still. After killing, he's not even concerned about his parents, whose hearts he probably broke, right? Imagine. I mean, he's, the only thing he cares about is that he doesn't get killed. Like, God, what are you going to, what do, if you do this to me, then I'm, someone's going to do to me what I did to mm -hmm. Abel. And yet he doesn't get the irony of that. And like you, but like you said, God still responds with mercy and grace. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one could, who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Wow. Grace. Grace. So this, it, it, there's this mark of grace. And just like we talked about in the question that we received from YouTube, this idea of the east, this place that is just... So close to the presence of God. And so I think what the author is trying to do is he's trying to say, there is still the opportunity hmm. for redemption and grace. There is still the opportunity for Cain to enter into hmm. the presence of God. God is placing him east of Eden in this in this prime location where he can experience a restoration of his relationship with God. And yet, hmm. it continues. Incredible, I know. But it continues to get worse after that. I know. It just keeps on deteriorating. So Cain um, then gives birth to a son, Enoch. They build a city. Um, Methush Methushael gives birth to Lamech. And so, and now you have within a span of three generations, verse 19, Lamech married two woman, women, one named Adam, one named Zillah. So now you've got... Uh, the the kind of deteriorating not only in the, in the relationships that God had considered ideal. Mm -hmm. Now you've got uh, people building cities and Lamech, who is a really interesting uh, gentleman, um, giving birth to civilization. And then verse twenty three. Lamech says to his wife, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my voice. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for in, injuring me. Mm. Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, seventy-seven. <laughs> this is within a few generations, and I think it goes back to to the conversation we were having about generational sin mm. and generational trauma, and how if you don't at some point decide to deal with this brokenness, it's gonna be much like those credit cards that we got in college. Mm -hmm. The interest just keeps on compounding mm -hmm. and it gets worse and worse. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I, I noticed here is Lamech married two women. And, I, you know, I don't think scripture really 
comes out and says don't marry two women at least in Genesis and yet I don't I can't think of a single time where good things happen because man, a man married two different women. No. It always goes bad. <laughs> it all and we goes bad. and men keep doing it and it's like <laughs> it always ends bad. It ends bad because it's breaking this this idea of mutuality, right? Yeah. Uh, the idea of monogamy and mutuality is an idea that is deeply connected to this concept of trust and that is why by the way the the idea of idolatry is very linked in the old testament to sexual purity there's they're almost kind of these mirror images of each other because god knows what happens when you replace these relationships in the order that he decided or or thought they should they should be had so it's a brutal story all over mm. and just as soon as you're thinking to yourself well all this guy did was run murder create more violence by the way lamech isn't even hiding the fact that he killed yeah. someone he's actually proud of it yeah. and he says hey by the way 70 times 70 times uh, uh 70 times seven i will avenge myself i'm greater not only am i am i am i a murderer like cain i'm greater than god because i can avenge anyone better than god can mm. so this kind of combination right of genesis 2 and 3 the fall mm -hmm. and this idea of becoming our own god m molds and melds perfectly in this horrible reality in that is now embodied in Lamech and this is what the world has become and yet mm -hmm. even in spite of that grace Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him at that time men began to call on the name of the Lord wow wow and I love how the the lesson this describes the name of Seth and that mm -hmm. that mirror of um, Seth has that same root of uh, that God used when he put enmity between mm -hmm. between women and uh, the descendants of women and, and the descendants of 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 the serpent. It's like God fought, God again has to intervene and say, you know, generational sin you keep choosing the wrong things over and over again. I have to finally, I have to step in again and, and place that enmity to place that so that you don't take humanity off mm -hmm. on its wrong course. And it just kind of shows me that if we were left to our own devices, humanity would just destroy itself. It's only because God intervenes. Even, even us having that enmity against sin, of having at least the inkling of the desire to not want to sin, even though we want to sin, even that is grace. Even that is from God because he places that. He intervenes in those moments to place opportunities for humanity to make a change. Mm. Not just humanity, but for us personally to make a change. Joey, I think that is a perfect place to end today. Um, I know that we're wondering, well, yeah, but my life is really broken. Mm. My history, my family's history, the, the trauma and the things that I deal with are so terrible. I think that's why the story made it into the canon, mm. brutal as it was. It makes it into the canon to say there is no story so bleak and dark that God won't step in and say enough yeah and 
All we need to do to recognize what God is already doing is clearly delineated at the end of our chapter. Mm. So just call on the name of the Lord. Amen. Dear friends, we want to continue hearing your comments, your questions. It is probably our favorite part of our time together. So make sure if you have any comment, any question, anything that you would like to share, we want to invite you to our table in our conversation. So you can send those. Joey, what is your email? What do, how do our friends out there get to contact you? It's uh, on our website, but it's j-o-o-h at l-l-u-c dot org. Thank you, Joey. And as always, you can find me also on our website or M-M-E-N-D-E-Z at L-O-U-C dot org. Thank you so much for watching. Keep those comments coming. Maybe uh, we'll have a surprise for you at the end of the quarter. Joey, how cool would it be if we could have one of our virtual members of the audience actually in person oh, here man, by the end would, of the quarter? That would be really cool. That'd but be just, cool. just something to keep in the back of your mind. <laughs> Um, we love, love, love our viewers. Thank you again for what you do. You make this conversation so much more invigorating. Joey, why don't you pray us off? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Good and gracious God, this passage reminds us how destructive sin is and how often we've let sin destroy us inside and out in our personal lives. And yet, as Miguel beautifully said, as this passage beautifully shows it is our the destructiveness of sin is no match for the the gracefulness of your love and grace lord and so we ask that you remind us in those moments where we feel lost in our sin that we have but to call upon you to call upon the name of the lord to admit the brokenness that we have inside and to ask for your help lord Give us the humility to ask for help. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dear friends, we'll see you next Sabbath. But until we meet again, just know that we are praying for you.